Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. You sounded great today. Really good. Singing out. I like it. Do you have your Bible with you this morning? Good. Galatians chapter 6 is where you need to go. Galatians chapter 6. Last week, we looked at a text that instructed us about what the relationship between the pastor and the people should look like. Not, not exhaustively, but one window into what the relationship between the pastor and the people should look like. It was fitting that we should look at such a text on a day that we designated as Pastor Appreciation Day. And speaking of that, I think I speak on behalf of the whole staff when I say thank you. Uh, thank you for the day. Thank you for the lunch. Thank you for the encouraging words. Thank you for the gifts. Just thank you. Thank you. It is a joy to serve the Lord Jesus Christ alongside you here at First Baptist Church. In Galatians, in particular, last week, we saw some clear expectations within the church. We said that within the church, there is an expectation that some will teach and some will learn. And we need to embrace that role wherever we find ourselves, whether we are the teacher in a particular scenario or the student in a scenario, we need to embrace our role. Secondly, we said that within the church, there is an expectation that the Word of God will be the focus of the teaching and the learning. There are a lot of other things that we could talk about, a lot of other things we could spend our time studying and looking at together. But when we gather together, we must spend our time in the Word of God. It is what we need. It is authoritative. It is sufficient for us. So let's gather together around God's Word every chance we get. And then finally, we said that within the church, there is an expectation that those who are taught will share with those who teach. And here we talk not just about the clear biblical principle that the people of God should financially and materially support the servants of God, but also that there is a deeper partnership, a deeper fellowship that is expected. In other words, what we're talking about here is not just a cold business transaction, but a deep sharing of life, a deep sharing of love with one another. Well, this week what we're going to do is spend our time examining this big principle that hangs over really this whole section of Galatians that we're going to look at from chapter 6, verse 6 through chapter 6, verse 10. Tim Keller calls this principle that we'll study today, quote, the law of great returns. The text says it like this, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. There is no escaping this. There is no escaping this principle. Whether we find ourselves at the farm or in life, there is no escaping this great principle that whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Let's read the text together today. Galatians chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 6, read through verse 10. Spend most of our time this morning in verses 7 and 8. This is what God's word says. The one who is taught, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will help us open our eyes to this inescapable principle that is ordained by you, overseen by you that whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. I pray that you will give us ears to hear the warning, that if we sow to the flesh, we will from the flesh reap corruption, and help us to hear the great hopeful promise, 
that if we sow to the Spirit, we will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God, give us ears to hear what we need to hear today and change our lives by your word, by your power, by your grace, and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we'll start out in verse 7. The first little phrase in verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. And I think this is an important place to start, especially when we're talking about an inescapable principle like whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. There is a sense in which we are often deceived along these lines. We like to think that we can escape this principle. And Paul is warning us here that there is absolutely no escape from this principle. But in saying, do not be deceived, I think Paul raises a question of who is the one who's doing the deceiving? Who who would it be that would try to deceive us that God can be mocked? Who would it be that would try to deceive us that we can reap something other than what we sow? Well, I think there are three answers to that question, at least three answers to that question in this text. First is in the immediate context, I think Paul is making a reference to the Judaizers, the Judaizing false teachers who have been constantly a problem for the people in Galatia who are essentially saying, yeah, Jesus died, but Jesus' death isn't enough. You also need circumcision, you also need dietary laws, you also need law-keeping in order to be justified by God. Those are the ones who are deceiving God's people. And we need to see that on one layer. The Judaizers are deceiving God's people. That God can be mocked in the worst way by saying that Jesus' death, the death of the very Son of God, is not enough to save men, women, and boys and girls. Maybe on another level, we would say that we often deceive ourselves because of our own sinful tendencies. And we saw that in Sunday school this morning, right? That we are led led astray by our own sinful desires, that we are often self-deceived. And we do this internally a lot of times. We are faced with some kind of temptation, and we say, ah, it won't really be as bad. It won't really be as bad as what God's Word says. Or, oh, nobody will really know that this happened. And this won't affect anybody other than me. And so we deceive ourselves that God can be mocked. We deceive ourselves that we could potentially sow something and reap something different. So the Judaizers are deceivers. We are deceivers of ourselves. But I think we also need to recognize, thirdly, that there is a great deceiver. There is an adversary who works by deception. And he has been working by deception from the very beginning. If you rewind in your biblical framework back to the Garden of Eden, when Satan first makes his appearance to tempt Adam and Eve, he is a deceiver in that moment. He says, did God really say, did God really say not to eat from any tree of the garden? And then he goes a step further and he, and he blatantly contradicts, contradicts God and says, you won't really die. I know God said that you will die if you eat from this, but you won't really die. You see, we have an adversary who is a deceiver. One of my friends this week in talking about this text said that when we hear a message that God can be mocked or that we will not reap what we sow, we need to recognize that that message always comes with a hiss, like a snake. I think that's a good way to think about it. When you hear the voice that says, God can be mocked, God can't be taken at his word, or that you can reap something different than what you sow, it has a hiss like a snake. And we who are spiritual must be able to hear that hiss. And when we hear the hiss, we run away. We we reject the voice that comes with a hiss, right? Because it comes from the deceiver ultimately. And so Paul starts this section by saying, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. There is a deception out there. And you must not buy into it. And then he says, God is not mocked. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. 
John Piper did a good job of illustrating this part of the text by making reference to what a parent will sometimes say to a child who cops an attitude. He says, the text says, God is not mocked. What does that mean? Well, it means the same thing a good father means when he says to his child, I will not be spoken to in that tone of voice. That is, you will deeply regret using that tone of voice with me. Or as Paul puts it, you will reap what you sow. God is not mocked means if you treat his word with scorn, you will deeply regret it. I think that's a great way to look at this. That we cannot treat God with scorn. We cannot treat his word with scorn. We cannot mock him. We cannot act as if we will reap something other than what we've sown and think we will not regret it. And way too often, we think that we can mock God. We think that we can cop an attitude with him, that we can have a tone with him and not regret it. All too often, we think God is a parent like parents we see all the time around us who tell their kids that they are going to count to three. And if that child is still engaged in the bad behavior, they will regret it. And those parents never get to three. And so the kid never regrets it. And some kids catch on to that. And they know right off the bat when mom says, I'm going to count to three, in their minds they say, no, you won't. You only know how to count to two and a half. You've never gotten to three. And so they know nothing of the regret that comes from mocking their parents. And so the mockery continues. Do not think that God the Father is a parent like that. He is not. He says in his word that he is not mocked. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He goes on and says, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Now, this is the big idea that, the whole, that is hanging over the whole text. And this is the principle that we must grasp today. And I see in this principle two certainties. Two certainties that I want us to see together. First, what you sow, you will reap. What you sow, you will reap. Emphasis on what. And secondly, what you sow, you will reap. The emphasis on the reaping. And I think both of these things are absolute certainties. Let's deal with the first one, the emphasis on what you sow. What you sow, you will reap. There is a certain and definite consistency between the sowing and the reaping. If a farmer plants corn, what will he bring in at the harvest? Corn. If he plants beans, what will he bring in at the harvest? Beans. Only a crazy person would want to have a harvest of corn in the fall and yet plant beans in the spring. What a fool that farmer would be, right? And therefore, speaking spiritually, we must be very careful about what we sow, about what seeds we are planting, what we are investing our lives in, how we are spending our time, how we are spending our money, how we are spending our energy, how we are engaging in relationships. These are the seeds that we sow. And what we sow, we will reap. We will not reap something different than what we sow. We cannot expect to plant garbage and harvest gold. And so let's be very careful with how we plant the seeds. Secondly, the second emphasis and certainty that we see in this text is that what you sow, you will reap. There will be a harvest. You will reap in the end. There is a certain inevitability to the harvest. Now, this is where the image strays a bit from agriculture. 
Because a farmer could, hypothetically, decide not to harvest what he planted, right? A farmer could spend all of his time in the spring planting the field, tending to the field throughout the year, and then harvest time come and he say, nah, not interested in harvesting that field. You know what we call that guy? Bankrupt. Hungry. A terrible farmer, right? Because the whole point of planting is reaping. The whole point of sowing is harvesting. And so we want to recognize that. Now, spiritually speaking, we often think that we can plant seeds and there won't be a harvest later on down the road. And this text teaches us that such thinking is deception. There will be a harvest. For better or worse, there will be a harvest. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 speaks to this. It'll be on the screen. When Paul says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And what he's talking about in that larger section is there are some people who see the kindness, tolerance, and patience of God in light of their sin as evidence that God doesn't really care about our sin. That, that we can sin and there's not immediate consequence or immediate judgment. A lot of times people step back and say, he doesn't care. He doesn't even care. I can do this and totally get away with it. Like for years, I can get away with it. He doesn't really care. There's not going to be a harvest. And so when they start thinking that way, they begin to go on in the sin. And they abuse God's kindness and tolerance and patience as an excuse to go on sinning, to go even deeper into sin. And what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 2 is that's a, that's a misuse of his kindness and tolerance and patience. Rather, we should see his kindness and, kindness and tolerance and patience as an opportunity for us to repent. Not as an excuse for us to go on sinning, but as a gracious opportunity for us to repent. You see, there are people, and we all naturally want to think, there's not going to be a reckoning. There, there's not going to be a harvest. I can sow whatever kind of seed I want, and at the end of the day, there will be no harvest. This text is teaching us that there will be a harvest, for better or worse. And along these lines, John MacArthur said something profound about this. He said, look at it on the screen. To a great extent, a person's character is the product of seeds planted in his early life. I read John MacArthur say that, and I thought, man, that's profound. And that is important. And I want to say to you, you young people, listen up. Because the world is going to tell you, sow your wild oats while you are young. Literally, they will use that exact phrase to you. Sow your wild oats while you are young. And I want to tell you on the basis of God's word that if you sow your wild oats, you will reap the harvest of those oats at some point in your life. But... But if you, as young people, start even now sowing good seed in a good field, you will reap in the end a harvest of godliness and trust and character and integrity as you age and mature. So don't buy into the lie, young people, that you can just sow whatever seeds you want now and there won't be a harvest later on. No, be very careful how you sow now and you will avoid a world of heartache later on down the road. And I think a lot of the old folks in the room could testify to that. Could say, if I could rewind and sow less wild oats when I was a kid and more good seed when I was a kid into the good field, I'd go back and do it in a heartbeat. So you young people, be very careful. I think John MacArthur is right. And he's an old dude, right? 
So he can say something like this. To a great extent, a person's character is the product of seeds planted in his early life. Warren Wearsby also hit it on the head when he said, once we have finished sowing, we cannot change the harvest. You can't stop mid-summer and say, oh, I don't want corn in that field. I want beans in that field. No, the corn's growing. You will harvest corn. Once you have finished sowing, we cannot change the harvest. So those are the two big ideas that I want you to see from this principle. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. What you sow is what you will reap. And what you sow, you will reap someday, somehow. Now, in verse 8, Paul gives more detail to the principle. He fleshes it out a little bit. Look what he says at the beginning of verse 8. He says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Now, when he starts talking about flesh, we need to remember the contrast and the conflict even between the flesh and the spirit that we have seen in chapter 5. So go back with me to chapter 5, starting in verse 13, and, and read this with me. Chapter 5, starting in verse 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in a word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, And things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also Walk by the Spirit. Now go back to chapter 6, verse 8. The one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Is that not the same principle that we've seen in chapter 5? It's absolutely the same principle. When we share, when we invest, when we pour into the flesh, which is that old man that is opposed to God and his purposes, when we pour into the flesh, we will from that flesh get only corruption. And I think in talking about corruption here or destruction, Paul is primarily, primarily talking about eternal consequence here. The life of an unbeliever is marked by fleshly investment and the life of an unbeliever will ultimately lead to eternal destruction. I think when Paul talks about this here in verse 8, he is talking primarily about eternal consequences. If you sow to the flesh... If your life is marked by investment in the flesh, you will from the flesh reap corruption, reap eternal condemnation and death. I think that's primarily what Paul is talking about here, but it's not exclusively what he's talking about here. 
I don't think he's exclusively talking about eternal consequence. For we would all acknowledge that even those of us who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ experience temporal consequences when we sow to the flesh. Not, not, we, don't, we don't walk according to the flesh, but occasionally we stumble. We take a step according to the flesh. And when we do, we are not eternally damned for that, but there will be consequences for that straying step, right? Being in Christ Jesus does not deliver us from the consequences of our sin, from the temporal consequences of our sin. John MacArthur sums this up by saying, Therefore, just because you are saved, Paul was essentially saying, don't think that you can sin with impunity. You are terribly deceived if you think that God does not deal severely with sin in the lives of his children, including the sin of legalism, which substitutes man's work for God's. When believers fail to acknowledge the reality or seriousness of sin in their lives, their hearts are deceived and God is mocked. Don't, don't think that that's the way it works. Don't think that if you just say, well, I'm, in, I'm not in the fleshly category here. I'm in the spiritual category because I've been saved by God's grace. Therefore, if I sow to the flesh on occasion, I won't reap any corruption from the flesh. No, you will. You will. Not eternal condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus. But temporal consequences for your sin will still fall upon you. So all of this begs the question then, what does it look like to sow to the flesh? If, if part of what's going on in this text is we are being called not to sow to the flesh, what does it look like to sow to the flesh? One scholar says it means to constantly seek to satisfy your own selfish desires. To be ruled and governed by your own selfish desires. To pursue pleasure, power, pride, privilege, whatever else. To be constantly satisfying your selfish desires. David Platt says it like this on the screen. He says, to sow to the flesh is to pander to it, to coss it, to cuddle, to stroke it, instead of crucifying it. The seeds we sow are largely thoughts and deeds. Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they do not reap holiness. Holiness is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow. I love when, when Platt says, holiness is a harvest. And if we are sowing to the flesh, the harvest that we will reap is not holiness. And so therefore, like we said earlier, we need to be very careful about how and where we sow. So therefore, we need to consider carefully our time, our energy, our attention, our affection. Consider carefully where all of that is focused. To what or to whom is our time and energy and affection and attention given? Is it given to ourselves, our own fleshly desires, or is it given to the work of the Lord in our lives? It's what it looks like to sow to the flesh, to be constantly seeking to satisfy our own selfish desires. Now, what does it look like to reap corruption from the flesh? Well, on the most serious level, it means to not inherit eternal life, like he said in chapter 5. It means to go to hell, essentially. What we will reap from the flesh, if our lives are marked by sowing to the flesh, is we will reap eternal condemnation, eternal judgment and torment. On a, on a different note, part of what it means to reap corruption from the flesh is to experience the painful consequences of our sin in this life. 
to feel the weight of our sin in this life so that we will not repeat it. Maybe, on a different level, it means to experience tension in our relationship with the Lord in the form of guilt and shame and regret, a lack of freedom in worship because of our sin. Point is, if we sow to the flesh, we will, from the flesh, reap corruption in some way, on some level. But, here's the good news, at the end of verse 8, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I want us to hear, with the right kind of ears, the beginning of verse 8 as a strong warning, and the end of verse 8 as a hopeful promise. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption, but if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life, is what he said. The word but makes the contrast here. This is the other side of the coin. And again, I think here Paul is talking primarily about the eternal consequence. The one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. This is the hope of heaven that he's talking about here. And although I think he's talking primarily about eternal consequence here, he's not talking exclusively about eternal consequence here. For eternal life is experienced by the followers of Jesus here and now. We experience the eternal life that he gives us by grace here and now. It's not just something that we're waiting for. It's something that we're living in. And Jesus describes that in John chapter 10, verse 10, when he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, the life that God gives us is not just a life that we are waiting for when we die. It is a life that we are currently living. So we're talking here both about future consequence, eternal consequence, and temporal consequence. So the same two questions apply. What does it look like to sow to the Spirit? If here we're being called to sow to the Spirit, what does it look like to sow to the Spirit? Well, he's already been talking about this in Galatians. Sow to the Spirit, it's the same as set your mind on the Spirit. It's the same as walk by the Spirit, like he talked about in chapter 5. It looks like the kind of stuff you talked about in James this morning. At the end of your Sunday school lesson, you talked about all these different ways to live out your faith, right? To be careful. What's religion look like? It looks like being careful with how you talk. What's religion look like? It looks like caring for the orphans and the widows. What's religion look like? It looks like purity, being unstained by the world. What's religion look like? It looks like e equality amongst God's people and a lack of favoritism or prejudice. That's what it looks like to sow to the Spirit, to live out Christian holiness in Christian living. What does it look like to sow to the Spirit? It looks like bearing the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about in chapter 5. It looks like a life that is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what it looks like to sow to the Spirit. Tim Keller said it looks like obeying God out of the grateful joy that comes from knowing our status as children of God. When we do that, the idols which controlled our lives are disempowered and we are free to live for God. It looks like being grateful for the gift of salvation that you've been given and living every moment of your life in response to that gift. That's what it looks like to sow to the Spirit. So what does it look like to reap eternal life? Well, on the one hand, it looks like the hope of heaven when you die. I went to a funeral yesterday of a lady that I didn't know. I, I know several of her family members, um, but if she was half of what the preachers talked about, as a Christian woman, 
who gave evidence of her faith in Jesus Christ by the way she lived, she's in heaven for sure. Jesus made a difference in her life, as far as I could tell. So part of what it means to reap eternal life is to have the hope of heaven when you die. And part of what it looks like to reap eternal life is to have a life here and now, a life of joy, a life of endurance, a life of purpose. If we sow to the Spirit, we will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If we sow to the flesh, we will from the flesh reap corruption. So therefore, I encourage you all the more to be careful with what you sow and where you sow it, because there will be a harvest. Now, some of you may be listening to all this and you say, wait a minute, this sounds like a works-based salvation. It sounds like just wherever I spend my life, that's what the result will be. That, that, that my eternal destiny, whether I go to hell or to heaven, is based on where I sow. And if you have that question, I would say, read the rest of the letter. <laughs> like, read the rest of Galatians and know that Paul is definitely not arguing for a works-based salvation. He is arguing against a works-based salvation here. R.C. Sproul uh, identifies what's going on in this text when he says, of course Paul is not here abandoning justification by faith for a works-based salvation. He is teaching what happens after we profess Christ. We who, we who prove that we belong to Jesus by following his way do so only because the Holy Spirit has changed our hearts. And even then, our remaining sin makes our works undeserving of a reward. In other words, this text is not teaching a works-based salvation. This text is teaching what it looks like to either not know Jesus and not follow Jesus or follow Jesus. Because if you don't know Jesus, if, you're not, if you've not been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you will naturally sow to the flesh. And you will inevitably reap corruption from the flesh. But if you belong to Jesus, if you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, your life will be marked by sowing to the Spirit. Your life will be known by sowing to the Spirit, and you will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It will be evidence of the work that God has done in you. It won't be, it won't be what produces God's work. It will be evidence of God's work in your life. Does this make sense? Let's not get this backwards. Let's not think, if I just do the right things, I'll get eternal life. No, no, no. Eternal life is about trusting in Jesus Christ. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, you do the right things. You sow to the Spirit. That's what your life will be marked by. So, three applications today. Number one, be careful. Be careful with your sowing. Be careful with your sowing. And in fact, I would encourage you to take some inventory of your life right now. Of your resources, of your time, of your money, of your energy, of your attention, of your affection. What of it is being sown to the flesh? What of it is about your evil desires, your selfish, fleshly desires? What amount of your time is all about you? What amount of your attention is all about you? And what of your time and attention and resources is being invested in the kingdom of God? What of your time and attention is sown to the Spirit? I think we would all be wise to spend some time evaluating our lives and where our energies are going. Young people especially, be careful with your sowing because the seeds that you sow today will become the mark of your life in years to come. Don't think that youth is a time to sow the wild seeds. 
It's the time to plant, looking forward to a harvest of righteousness, looking forward to a harvest of eternal life. Be careful with how you sow. Number two, there will be a harvest. It's inevitable. There will be a harvest. It may be sooner, it may be later, but there will be a harvest. There may be a massive delay between when you sow your seed and when you reap the harvest, but there will be a harvest. And that harvest may be for the better or for the worse, depending on how the sowing was. But there will be a harvest, and it will come. And what we're going to see next week is that that, for those of us who are sowing to the Spirit, is a hopeful prospect. Like, read the, read the next verse in, in the text. All of this talk about sowing and reaping, and then in verse 9 he says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Like he says... Don't get discouraged when you're sowing to the Spirit and you don't see an immediate harvest. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Don't faint, for in due time you will reap. You will reap. That's a hopeful prospect for those who are sowing to the Spirit. And it is a terrifying prospect for those who are sowing to the flesh. Because in the same way, you will, you will reap. You will reap what you sow. The harvest will come. And then finally, let's recognize that the sowing and the harvesting are evidence of who we really are. Where we sow our seed and the harvest that comes from it is evidence of who we really are. If we are of the flesh, we will sow to the flesh and we will reap from the flesh corruption. And if we are of the Spirit, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we will sow to the Spirit and from the Spirit reap eternal life. The big question today is not so much what are you doing, but who are you? And sometimes the best way to know who we are is to examine what we're doing. Because that action is flowing from somewhere. Maybe your action is flowing from an unregenerate, unchristian, unbelieving heart. Maybe your action is showing that you do belong to him and can rejoice over the salvation that's been given to you by God's grace. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we are so thankful for texts like this that reveal with clarity how life works, how the world works, principles like this that are inescapable. We're thankful for passages like this. We're thankful for passages like this that give us a stark warning and a hopeful promise. And we want to respond to this text rightly by being very careful in our sowing. That we would be sowing to the Spirit. And by your grace, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. And I pray that you will teach us where and why we sow to the flesh. pray that by your spirit and by your grace you will grant us repentance to turn away from fleshly sowing that leads to corruption and turn toward you in faith. God, I pray that you will help us to see clearly today who we are, whether we belong to you or not. And God, I pray that you will use even the examination of our lives to help us see that very clearly.
We thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus who died for sinners. We pray that every moment of our lives will be lived in response to the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.